Hi, I'm Hannah Minty. I'm a partner in the family team at Russell Cook. And I'm Gareth Ledsham and I'm a partner in the Trust and Estate Disputes team at Russell Cook. This is the first of our Let's Talk About series of podcasts where we draw on the experience that we've got across the breadth of the firm to discuss some areas which we hope will be of interest to you. And today we wanted to talk about an issue which has arisen with a potential crossover between our two teams as it concerns the application of succession law and the exercise of parental responsibility. And more particularly, it concerns an application to the court for authority on behalf of a parent to deal with inherited property located overseas on behalf of a minor child, especially in civil law jurisdictions such as France. It may be something you've come across. It may be something which is totally unfamiliar to you. It was certainly unfamiliar to me before I spoke to Gareth about this quite recently. Issues of this nature were, I understand, previously dealt with solely by private client lawyers. And it was dealt with by way of an application in the Chancery Division of the High Court, where permission could be sought to enter into a transaction on behalf of a child in the foreign jurisdiction. And the application was relatively straightforward and could be dealt with on paper. Following a decision last year by Mr Justice Peel, it has been confirmed that this is an area which falls within the exercise of parental responsibility, and it should be addressed by way of a specific issue application under Section 8 of the Children Act 1989, and dealt within the Family Division of the High Court instead, and this has also been recently affirmed by one of the Chancery Masters. Now, applications under Section 8 of the Children Act 1989 are an area which may be less familiar to many private client lawyers. And while family lawyers are well versed in Children Act applications, we are very much not used to dealing with applications concerning the administration of a child's inherited property. So we wanted to take a few minutes today to just outline when the situation might arise, how it was dealt with previously and what the position is now. Thank you very much, Hannah. Um, As you say, the family division is a very unfamiliar territory for those of us in the private client sphere. I've got some limited experience when I deal with Inheritance Act claims, but I am certainly much more comfortable with a Chancery Master or Judge than I am in the family division. So as to where these uh, applications arise, well, the issue tends to rise, as you've alluded to earlier, where you've got a child who's habitually resident in England, but they become an owner of real property abroad. Now, generally speaking, and again, as you mentioned, this is going to be in civil law jurisdictions. Now, in England and common law jurisdictions, children cannot legally own property, and so the issue doesn't arise. However, in civil law jurisdictions, children can directly own property or at least have a right to receive property. And I think one of the reasons for the distinction is that civil law jurisdictions such as France and Germany don't recognise trusts or certainly not to the same extent as we uh, have them in this jurisdiction. So the result is that we end up with minor children owning uh, a property or having a right to the property. And this is often through an inheritance or uh, sometimes by way of a gift. Where it often occurs is where you have had what's often called forced airship. Uh, And so a share of property will pass down into various shares. uh, And on occasion, it ends up with uh, a minor child having perhaps quite a small interest in a property. Now, where it becomes an issue is either in the administration of the succession or more likely when you're trying to sell the property. Accepting succession for a child enables them to actually own the property. And if you're wanting to sell the property, then the foreign jurisdiction may need Uh, an order from a court either in 
their jurisdiction, or in the case of children habitually residents in England, from this jurisdiction. So previously, what we used to do was make an application to, well, it depends on whether we were doing it purely for acceptance or for acceptance of the succession and a sale. And often it would be the last two together because you would be dealing with a sale of the property at the same time. The reason for that is that it can be quite in, um, inconvenient for a minor child to own a tiny share of a property in a foreign jurisdiction with other branches of the family and all the costs that go with that. So they deal with the succession, they get the sale at the same time. If you're dealing with just pure acceptance, then things have never been too problematic. And Section 3 of the Children Act 1989, as family practitioners listening to this will know, um, a parent is able to recover property on behalf of the child. Uh, and certainly in my experience, some notaries have been happy to proceed uh, on confirmation by way of a, a certificate of custom or a witness statement from an English lawyer saying uh, effectively what the Children Act says, i.e. that the, the Children Act allows parents to recover and accept property on behalf of a child. More tricky is where the uh, property is to be sold. And the thinking certainly was that Section 3 did not extend to the power of a parent to sell property on behalf of the child. Uh, and that was certainly the view of Master Matthews, as he then was in a case called Hayes and Hayes back in 2015. In that case, it was exactly the scenario we're talking about. There was a child who had an interest in property in France and uh, Master Matthews was trying to work out exactly how he could deal with allowing a parent who was applying to the court to deal with the property there. Prior to the Hayes and Hayes decision, applications had been made to the court, uh, and I've done it myself, on the basis of the Trustee Act 1925. But the master pointed out, quite rightly, that the Trustee Act 1925 isn't extraterritorial and so couldn't be used in these circumstances. Now, in the event, he ended up dealing with the application on the basis of French law. But since that case, I've been making applications, putting various bases forward to the court to enable the judge to uh, make uh, the order that's required. For example, I've set out that the court can exercise its inherent jurisdiction or even the salvage jurisdiction, which is effectively dealing with a wasting asset. If you've got a property that's going to rack and ruin in a foreign jurisdiction, then it makes sense for the court to be able to, to make an order in respect of it to you know, protect the asset for the child. And so in my experience, the Chancellor Division had got quite used to dealing with these applications and were often quite pragmatic about them. And as Hannah mentioned a few moments ago, they would often deal with them on paper. In terms of the actual procedure, that was fairly straightforward as well. The application was made under Part 8 of the Civil Procedure Rules, which is the uh, straightforward application where there's no issues of fact. There would be a witness statement that sets out all the details, setting out why the foreign jurisdiction needs the order from England. There would be some evidence of foreign law. We'd explain why this was essentially a very good idea. Uh, for the property to be sold and the child to receive the proceeds, or should I say the parent to receive the proceeds on the child's behalf. And essentially, we'd put together all the information that the court would need. We would generally name the child as a defendant, a litigation friend would be appointed, and they would be asked to confirm whether they approved it. And generally speaking, as I say, the courts were quite happy to, to make the orders required. 
Um, however, the position does now seem to have changed in that Mr Justice Peel says, contrary to what Master Matthews said in Hayes and Hayes, that Section 3 of the Children Act uh, 1989 extends further than we initially thought and goes beyond just accepting property, but also uh, encompasses a power to sell it. So I'm going to pass over to Hannah to talk about the more recent decision that we've had in this area. So the decision of Mr. Justice Peel was in the case of Re-AC, a child, um, is 2020 EWFC 90, for anyone who would like the citation. And it concerned a child who was habitually resident in England. The mother and the father jointly owned a property in Italy and the father died intestate. And under Italian intestacy laws, the mother and the child were each entitled to half of the father's interest in that property. But in Italy, a child cannot accept an inheritance. It must be accepted by an adult and authorised by the court. Accepting the inheritance on behalf of the child is an exercise of parental responsibility. And the Italian courts could not authorise this on behalf of the child because the child was not habitually resident in Italy. And as such, it fell to be determined by the English courts. Um, In this instance, the mother applied for a specific issue order under Section 8 of the Children Act 1989, authorising her to accept the child's inheritance of the share of the Italian property on the child's behalf. And in this case, Mr Justice Peel granted the mother's application. And the decision really focused on the meaning of parental responsibility in section three, subsections one, two and three of the Children Act. As family lawyers will probably be familiar already, the parent responsibility is defined in Section 3 as all of the rights, duties, powers, responsibilities and authority which by law a parent of a child has in relation to that child and their property. And it also includes the rights, duties and powers which a guardian of the child's estate would have in relation to the child and their property. And it includes a right to receive or recover in the guardian's own name property for the benefit of the child wherever located, which the child is entitled to receive or recover. So Mr Justice Peel decided in the case of RE-AC that the definition of parent responsibility in Section 3 was all-encompassing and it should be construed purposefully in relation to this application. So he confirmed that the mother in this case had a clear responsibility to act in the child's interests in relation to the property that the child was entitled to and had a duty to actively take the steps to recover or receive the property for the child's benefit. And obviously, as Gareth has already mentioned, the previous authority on this, Hayes and Hayes in the Chancery Division, the opposite had been concluded in terms of Section 3 not conferring a power on a person with parental responsibility to actually enter into a contract, in that case, to sell immovable property on behalf of a minor child. In the case of REAC, the remedy thought was slightly different because the mother was asking for authority to accept an inheritance on behalf of the child, but not to sell the property at that stage. But Mr Justice Peel found that the power to authorise this did fall within Section 3 as an exercise of parental responsibility and went on to say that the mother might later seek to authorisation to sell the child's share of that property. And in Obitar, he suggested that Section 3 should be widely construed to also permit this. Um, 
Mr. Justice Peel's view in the judgment which was published is that in not interpreting the court's powers to include this as an exercise of parental responsibility, the court would effectively be preventing the child from selling the asset until he was 18. And he would not be able to otherwise convert it into other assets which could be managed and invested and deployed in his interest. So he made it clearer that in future applications for the sale of a minor child's property interest should be made in the family courts and will be dealt with as a specific issue order and an exercise of parental responsibility. The application be governed by the paramency principle in the usual way for applications under the Children Act when determining the exercise of parental responsibility and determining whether in each particular case the order that sought is in the best interests of the child so I think it's, it's certainly cleared up and widened the ambit of, of what the court can potentially do but it's thrown us uh, over to something which is slightly unfamiliar territory for both family lawyers and private client lawyers which is why we thought it was an, an interesting issue which might come across your desks. Gareth, am I right in thinking there's been another decision that's followed on from the case of Riesi? You're certainly right in thinking that. There was a case back in July of this year uh, in the Chancellor Division before Master Clark, uh, and that was the case of uh, Re Shanavazi. And in that case, uh, it was an application by the mother on behalf of her son for authority to enter into a contract of sale of the property in Germany. And Master Clark considered the approach in Hayes and Hayes and also the approach of Mr. Justice Peel in RE-AC. And she found that Mr. Justice Peel's reasoning uh, in the later case to be compelling and concluded that there was power under Section 3 of the Children Act to make the order sought. Now, in a way, this is very helpful because, uh, as I mentioned previously, when uh, these applications were being made, we were having to sort of make legal fictions is perhaps putting a bit too strongly, but we were having to sort of dance around a little bit on a pinhead, trying to uh, construct a legal basis on which the court could make an order, which was generally, it was obvious that the order needed to be made, they just need to have a basis on which to do it. So it's much better that, you know, it's been confirmed that Section 3 does extend to making these orders. Where things might get a little bit more complicated is dealing with it in the family courts, which, as I said earlier on in this podcast, are a little bit scary for private client lawyers. So, Hannah, can you tell me how this would fit into your family law procedure under Section 8? In short, it it doesn't fit very neatly into any kind of procedure which family lawyers would be familiar with for a Section 8 application under the Children Act. Section uh, 1, subsection 1 of the Children Act does provide for the court to determine questions in relation to the upbringing of a child or the administration of a child's property, but the vast majority of applications which family lawyers will deal with in uh, the family courts under Section 8 will be in relation to a child's upbringing. So this is something which is um, not neatly fitting into uh, the the, the category that we're used to using these types of applications for. Um, A specific issue application, which is the particular type of application under Section 8, which would be used, which was used in the case of REAC, and which would be used for making orders of this nature. It's It's an order giving direction for the purpose of determining a specific question which has arisen or may arise in connection with any aspect of parents and responsibility for a child, 
but the common examples of specific issue orders, which we will be used to uh, dealing with as family lawyers, are applications in relation to a change of a child's school or to direct issues such as medical treatment or religious upbringing for a child. It's very unusual to deal with a, an application concerning a child's property under Section 8 in this way. Family lawyers are familiar with applications for specific issue orders as a contested proceeding involving two parties, most commonly the child's parents or people who have parental responsibility for a child. And by way of contrast, the application in RE-AC involved only an applicant. There were no respondents to the proceedings as there was no person with any interest in the property save for the child. Applications for a specific issue order are made by way of a form C-100 and uh, the usual course of procedure is that there are safeguarding checks by CAFCAS which will usually uh, proceeds a first hearing dispute resolution appointment or FAHUDRA to try and encourage agreement between the two parties and then if that's unsuccessful there will be directions which may include a welfare report and then the listing of a dispute resolution appointment and a final hearing. Now in applications concerning the administration of a child's property this is clearly probably not going to be appropriate and would lead to costs and delay. So if you're dealing with an application about the administration of a child's property under Section 8, you are probably likely to want to invite the court to deal with the application in the most streamlined and cost-effective way possible. Um, Gareth, is this something that you've got any experience of from the cases that you've been dealing with? Well, it's certainly something I'm getting experience of. Yes, uh, I have about three of these cases on at the moment. Um, they seem to come along like buses. As we noted earlier, the fact that Section 3 is an option to us is very, very helpful. But the procedure that you've outlined sounds very convoluted for what should be a fairly straightforward and practical exercise and a practical decision that the court needs to make. And I note that Master Clark, in her judgment in Rishanavani, noted that you know this should be done with minimum cost to parties you know this is often a very straightforward obvious thing that needs to happen so i think what we need to do in these cases and what i'm doing on the cases i'm working on at the moment is to think pragmatically about how we can persuade the the family division to perhaps depart from some of its usual practices uh, i think the first practical step i could issue to any private client lawyers who are faced with this um, new world uh, for these applications is please speak to your family law colleagues because they will have a lot more experience on how to deal with the various forms and procedures in the in the family court but you know, having discussed things with Hannah, the, the approach we're going to take on my cases is to complete a form C-100, most of which won't be relevant, but also to accompany it by a witness statement uh, in a similar way to what we would do in the old procedure under the um, in the Chancery Division under Part 8 of the Civil Procedure Rules. Uh, so this statement will set out the reasons for the application, the, again, evidence of the requirements of the foreign jurisdiction, uh, and seek appropriate action at the allocation stage for allocation to a high court judge, uh, given the complexity of the matter. I think really, if we were to do a letter uh, to the court setting out what the position is, explaining why a Fahedra appointment uh, is not necessary, and to basically give as much information as we can in one package that will assist the administrative staff at the uh, court and also the judge who ends up with it on his or her desk to be able to 
deal with it all in one go and make the appropriate directions or hopefully order, although I suspect in these cases we will at least have to have one hearing to explain to the uh, judge how and why the uh, application is necessary and, and why the order is obviously the, the, the right thing to do. It's possible that if these applications are made more frequently in the family division, the family judges and the staff at the registry will get more used to dealing with them. And it may be that the process can be more streamlined. Uh, and that's really to be hoped for, because as I've said before, these are really quite straightforward issues. It's usually quite an obvious case that the property should be sold. And we just need to find a way to do this in as cost-effective way as possible for our clients. Okay. Well, that's been really helpful. Thank you, Gareth, for your excellent guidance on this topic. It's a really interesting area of crossover between two areas of law, and we hope you found it useful in terms of giving you a brief overview of something which might when they land on your desk, be you family lawyer or private client lawyer. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us, and please do join us again for our next Let's Talk About podcast soon. Thanks Thank you very you. much. Bye for Bye. now.